This is the menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. American Indian agriculture sales nearly doubled from 2017 to 2022 and is now a $6.4 billion industry. That's according to the new 2022 Census of Agriculture. And Okea Wenge chef turns his catering business into a new restaurant mixing comfort foods with the traditional spicy flavors of home that he calls indigenous soul food. And a Cherokee entrepreneur finds out running a grocery store packs more work and success than she imagined. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Navajo Nation has publicly released a proposed agreement to settle water rights claims in Arizona. The proposed settlement is close to completion with the U.S., Arizona, the Hopi Tribe, the San Juan Southern Paiute Tribe, and parties to the Little Colorado River. Claims also include the Colorado River Upper Basin, the Colorado River Lower Basin, the Gila River Basin, and groundwater. The Navajo Nation held a public education forum Wednesday night on the radio, which was also streamed online. Navajo Nation Attorney General Ethel Branch says the tribe's providing advanced information about the proposed settlement to Navajo people in the interest of transparency. The nation has tried to settle its Arizona water rights in various different capacities in the past for about three decades. And we now are excited to share with you that we're on the verge of a final settlement for the nation's comprehensive water rights in the state of Arizona. In the recent past, in particular, a lot of the discussion has focused on the Little Colorado River Basin. We haven't had as much discussion about the upper basin, full extent of the lower basin, or the Gila River Basin water rights of the nation. We are still in, in negotiations. Navajo officials say once the settlement is final, which is expected in early March, legislation will be introduced to the Navajo Nation Council for approval. Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren says the nation's primary objective is to affirm and quantify their rights to water in Arizona and secure funding to build much-needed water delivery infrastructure on the Navajo Nation. More than a dozen meetings are planned to be held in Arizona Navajo communities in the next few weeks to discuss the proposed settlement. A Minnesota organization is getting a baby food product out to consumers. The ingredients and packaging are designed to appeal to parents of Indigenous babies. Mike Moen reports. The Indigenous People's Task Force is trying to hit reset on the unhealthy diet European colonizers forced upon Native American populations. The first jars of Indigenous baby food were released in 2023, providing families with a wholesome and sustainable alternative to commercial products. The group's executive director, Sharon Day, says they want these youngsters to start their lives with a diet more consistent with what their tribal ancestors consumed. The wild rice, the blueberries, these are all ingredients and produce from North America, indigenous to this land the same way we are. Ingredients are grown locally using heirloom seeds and methods that forego the extractive approach of industrial agriculture. The IPTF markets these products using glass jars featuring an indigenous baby on the label because Day says that helps with native representation in retail sales 
while also avoiding plastic pouches that might expose the child to toxic chemicals. While some of these strategies might boost production expenses, Day says it's worth it to help reverse long-standing chronic health issues within Native communities. The diseases that we have that we're dying from are diabetes, stroke, and degenerative heart disease. And these are all caused by our diet. In distributing the first jars of Indigibaby, the IPTF prioritized community health clinics and food shelves in Minnesota and elsewhere. Project officials add that grocers are asking when they can stock these products, which may start appearing on regular store shelves as production capacity increases. That was Mike Moen with original reporting from Jay Gabler for Arts Midwest. Scott George and the Osage Singers will perform at the Oscars with Jage, a song for my people, from the film Killers of the Flower Moon. The song is nominated for an Oscar. The award ceremony will take place on Sunday, March 10th, airing on ABC. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Info on 35 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy. Every five years, the USDA documents agricultural, economic, and demographic activity. The department just released its 2022 Census of Agriculture this month. And one of the notable findings is the amount of money Native American farmers and associated businesses raked in in the past five years. The net sales are nearly double the amount from 2017. And that means Native Ag is a $6.4 billion industry. That rise comes during a global pandemic and an overall decrease in the number of farmers. We'll go over more Native Ag Census highlights with Kelsey Scott from the Intertribal Agriculture Council. But first, Ryan Taylor is the latest Indigenous chef to realize his culinary dream of opening a restaurant. Yeah, Pop-Up is open in Albuquerque inside of Tiny Grocer ABQ, which is another Native-owned food business focusing on fresh and local. We'll visit with both entrepreneurs now, and you can join us as well. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's uh, start with Elizabeth Gaylor from Old Town, Albuquerque. She's the owner of Tiny Grocer ABQ. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Welcome to the menu, Elizabeth. Hi, Andy. How are you? 
Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. All right. So um, it's been a couple of weeks since uh, Ryan and um, his business, Ya Pop Up, moved in to that space there. Uh, can you tell me how things have been uh, changing? How has the how has the vibe changed over there uh, for you? Um, it's been really nice having Ryan in here. Um, he and his team have been awesome. His partner. Um, Nessa um, is working here with him as well. And yeah, it's been quite, yeah, lovely and delicious having them here. Um, We, part of our focus um, with the grocery that we have is that everything that we get from local farms and it comes through the little grocery and then we use it in the cafe. And so it's been really fun because that has been um, super simple for Ryan to do because it was already how he cooked a lot so mm-hmm. um it's been yeah great to have them here <laughs> yeah and uh we'll have ryan on in just a little bit to talk more about the the menu and where he's coming from but uh could you first kind of set the scene for us and describe old town for those who are not familiar with this area of albuquerque yeah so um old town is like touted as like the historic roots of the city of Albuquerque. Um, it's been functioning as um, founded as Albuquerque. I think there was an extra R in it initially for the Duke of Albuquerque is a Spanish um, name um, in so about, um, I think about 400 years uh, or 318 is what we're coming up on the actual celebration. But um, the Spanish roots have been here. And so, of course, we have um, it's. I think a lot of times when people think of New Mexico or they think of Santa Fe, that's a lot of what people will picture from this part of the country um, with the like old Pueblo style um, construction. But then also there's always the church, the Catholic church, which is like kind of the center of our old town area here. Um, so the, the history of Albuquerque, you know, points to that as being like the foundation, but it's also been, you know, for like over 10,000 years, the Pueblo um, people were here in this area and farming all along the Rio Grande Valley. We have like the, this really amazing network of the, they call them the Acequias now, um, with this, which is the Spanish name. But, um, you know, historically, the Spanish wrote home talking about, oh, there's this beautiful network of irrigation channels that come out of the Rio Grande um, that go all across the valley and water it, and the people who live there had built this. And um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, as history has been retold, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the Estequias are Spanish, but they're actually, they've been here for thousands of years as well. And so the park that is right across from us um, is also like Tiwe Park, or Tiwesh Park, um, which is named for the Tiwa, who were here um, for a very long time living. And so um, it's a really uh, interesting, like, uh, cultural history to this specific neighborhood and to this area. And so... um, yeah, right. it's been it's been fun being here. <laughs> yeah, and and so now it is a big tourist draw, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah, because the um, 
the like historical nature of the area and the church that's been here for 300 years and then a lot of the buildings maybe aren't quite as old but they are built in the traditional um pueblo style with the like kiva and and the adobe style of building that a lot of people think of when they think of new mexico mm-hmm. and so it is a really cute 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 neighborhood um beautiful area and um yeah has a little park yeah <laughs> in the center and always events down here and so yeah it is a big tourist draw mm-hmm. the area and uh, so, so what has it been like operating a grocery store there? I mean, it, there's uh, tourist uh, shops right next door. There are jewelry yeah. shops right next door. I mean, um, uh, operating a grocery store, do you, do you also sell like uh, those those novelty like gift foods as well? Or what's it been um, like operating a yeah, grocery store a there? Yeah, a small amount. You know, it's funny because the grocery aspect um, grew out of actually during the shutdown I had opened um, an herb store here. I'm an herbalist. And so my initial business, I opened in fall of 2019, like very right before the shutdown happened. And so that was what my actual business plan for this area was, was my herb store. And, you know, from what my plan was, like celebrating all of these things that are made in, in Albuquerque and in New Mexico and so it's putting it on kind of a more public stage of um, tourists to be able to buy like handmade goods and herbal products. But during the shutdown, um, I took over this very tiny um, coffee shop that was next door, which hence the name Tiny Grocer. Um, and it was extremely small. It was like 150 square feet of retail space. And um, I did that just because, you know, at that time, it was impossible to like buy flour in the grocery store. All of the shelves were empty, but there's a, a mill right down the street, Valencia Mills, who mills flour. And so I, I was like, we can get flour here, but um, it's just not something that's stocked in the grocery or um, all of the stuff from the local farmers because the markets were shut down, um, like the farmer's markets were closed. And so it was just a, a really small outlet to help have local food available in our neighborhood. Um, and then it just kind of stayed. <laughs> and now I moved into a much larger location that was a restaurant space because I needed more kitchen space. Um, because again, one of the pieces is pulling the things from the local farms. Um, we sell them as fresh produce, but then also we'll cook with them and then have like soups and other things available that pe- in the freezer that people can take home and heat up. And so I needed more kitchen space in this building had two walk-ins and a huge kitchen. And so um, that also has this enormous patio that's right across from the, the park that I mentioned earlier. And so having a chef in here who can actually run a restaurant has been a real gift um, kind of combining the two. So mm-hmm. we do have, you know, some, I don't know if they're novelty items, but mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of tourists are looking for things like authentic green chili or red chili from the from the area and so we like package and sell um chili from local farmers and and things like that that people who are traveling can take home with them Um, but then also a lot of people who are staying in the neighborhood while they're traveling will shop here to have places like food to eat and then um, we serve a a lot of people who live in our neighborhood who are residents as residents here Um, so it has been kind of an odd spot to have a grocery store but it also (laughs) 
is kind of a food desert in other ways where there wasn't there's not really any close by groceries so it has yeah. been nice <laughs> so um coming from uh, uh you know just kind of filling these uh, needs during the pandemic it, it just kind of build uh, you built you know one layer on top of another on top of another how has it been um you know learning these different aspects of uh business and, and what's been the most challenging <laughs> part about operating a grocery store even though it's it's still tiny <laughs> Yeah, there have been, I mean, it has all been a lot of learning for sure. Um, it's been a lot. Yeah. <laughs> just leave it at that. Yeah, I um, Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had to learn a lot um, on my feet, um, just kind of about running a business. And then it, in my perspective, growing from the original tiny location into this location, it didn't seem like we were growing that much but it, it was a huge leap and so um, just having more employees and having to uh, kind of figure out a lot of those pieces um, it's been definitely a lot of learning right. <laughs> so. <laughs> all right well uh, this is the menu on Native America calling we're talking with uh, Elizabeth Gaylor right now she's the owner of tiny grocer ABQ here in Albuquerque we'll be back after this break we're going to talk a little bit more with her about uh, operating a grocery store and then um, chef Ryan Taylor he opened up his shop alongside uh, tiny grocer um, ya pop up so you can join us as always by calling 1-800-996-2848 A new art exhibit opens at the High Desert Museum this weekend, and it features interpretations and stories of Sasquatch, also known as Bigfoot, from native artists in the Northwest Desert region. We'll talk with some of the artists about this being, which is often respected as a spirit and a protector by tribes across Turtle Island, on the next episode of Native America Calling. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Native food news and stories. I'm Andy Murphy, and we're talking with Elizabeth Gaylor now about her grocery store, Tiny Grocer ABQ, and all the challenges and rewards that comes along with that. Uh, later, we'll get into highlights from the new 2022 Census of Agriculture. You can join by calling one 800 996-2848. How have native farms and food producers in your community been growing? We're also at 1-800-99-NATIVE. 
All right, um, Elizabeth. Uh, so, operating um, a grocery store, uh, you know, we we always see that um, you know grocery business is is pretty challenging, and that you know profit margins are pretty uh, thin. Uh, low. H- how do you sort of balance that? And, um, uh, you know, kind of what does the, I guess, the success of your business say um, about, uh, you know, the need for something like this in that area? Yeah, well, um, to be clear, it's uh, still a very new business. And I wouldn't say I've quite gotten over the hump um, of that yet to be like, oh, I'm I'm a profitable business yet. Um, it is a, a daunting um, and very scary industry to get into for sure. Like looking at the margins in grocery, and um, then there's a high amount of like employees that you need to have on staff, and it is it has been a lot trying to juggle that. But um, one of the things that I think are is key or is helpful for what I'm doing is um, doing a lot of the value added. And so we don't have waste in the same way that um, maybe a normal quote, normal grocery store would. Um, We don't, you know, we really try to minimize any amount of produce that gets thrown out. Um, We try to make sure that we use everything. So um, things will um, get made into value added products that people can take home and, eat or we use them in the cafe and so that has been um that is that is basically like the one thing that i have tried to do to make it so that we can work within the the very thin margins that we have because also because i and also i think working directly with the farmers because i do want to make sure that they're charging me what they need to survive like what they're what you know i don't i don't uh talk to them about what I think, you know, they come in and ask, you know, how much do you pay for this? And I say, well, I pay you what you need for it. So tell me, you tell me what your costs are, what your price is. Um, So I don't haggle with the farmers at all um, and just try to um, make sure that they get covered. And so again, you know, my markup will be extremely small, but also uh, because I'm not going to another middle person, like I don't have another distributor. I think that also makes it so it's not completely out of line and affordability for customers because I am paying the farmers directly. Um, so those are a couple of the key things um, working with all the different local farms and uh, farmers and ranchers in um, Albuquerque and, and New Mexico at large. Um, yeah. Um, What would your advice be to um, other entrepreneurs who are maybe thinking about opening a grocery store or a small um, business like yours that uh, also has maybe a couple shelves that have uh, like local products, products from their tribe or local farmers? Um, But what would your advice be to them? Definitely to find some sort of value add that they can create themselves to have some products that have higher margins to help balance out um, all of the products that don't have those margins. Um, I have had a lot of, you know, even I feel like every city um, and here in Albuquerque a lot, there's so many of these tiny 
buildings that used to be neighborhood groceries. You know, on every corner there was a neighborhood market, a neighborhood grocery. My own um, great-grandparents had a tiny grocery store up in Los Ojos um, at the turn of the century um, after they they came here, actually from Oklahoma, um, after they had been moved there um, and then came here in the early 1900s. But um, so, like, that's, I think... People always ask, oh, we want to have our neighborhood markets back. How do I reopen this? Or how I've had um, some, a woman in the Navajo Nation um, who's opening up a similar market. And I, it's kind of the same thing. I, people, I keep telling them, I don't know if there is a way to compete because of the way that things have changed so much, like with um, online shopping and like the large global marketplace that we have now. Um, it's really hard to compete for consumers. And so if you can find some sort of way to do a value add or maybe have a cafe or something so you have less waste and also have your own, a product that you are making because you would be able to have higher margins on that product um, because you're not yeah, selling it out outright. Um, and then also, you know, if you grow, then you can sell that same product as a wholesale product to other people too eventually. So um, I think that's a way to help balance out those margins. Um, yeah. I'm not an expert in this by any means. I'm, this is just <laughs> from my own um, experience with it. But, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your story there. Definitely really interesting learning about uh, that side of um, food access and, and food sovereignty. Um, so joining us now from just across the way is uh, Ryan Taylor. He's the chef and owner of Ya Pop Up, and he's OK Owinge. Uh, welcome to the menu, Ryan. Hello. How are you doing, Andy? Hey, doing pretty good. Um, glad you're able to join. I know it's getting close to your busy uh, lunch hour there. Um, so you've been in the space there for a couple weeks. You moved in. You moved to Albuquerque too. Uh, how are things going at Ya Pop Up? Uh, great. We're actually coming up on a month um, on the 28th, or actually yesterday was a month. That's crazy. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, it's just it's kind of that's kind of a testament to how fast uh, things have gone. Um, but with that being said, everything has been really, really great. Um, for those I don't know, we were previously in Santa Fe, and uh, the situation that we were in was just really it was just terrible. And um, I don't want to go too far into that, but uh, it was just kind of funny how things worked out. Like I, me and my partner Nessa, we we pretty much cleared our things out of our our spot in Santa Fe, and we were just freaking out wondering what our next move was mm -hmm. um i remember my girlfriend was kind of mad at me because i made the decision pretty much on our own and, and she was like are you serious and but the like the whole 12 hours of that that night that i uh that i cleaned my stuff out um i was just freaking out like i said and then liz ended up messaging me on instagram like later that morning at, like 8 a.m or something like that and she was like hey i have this spot i don't know if you want to come check it out and i'm like are you serious and uh the uh, I guess the only drawback at the time was that it was in Albuquerque, but um, you know, like you know, since we've been up here, uh, the community has been extremely support uh, supportful. Uh, we have a supportive. Uh, we have uh, been on the news. We've had several news articles written on us already. Um, we've been working with like local tourism companies uh, and with the uh, UNM and stuff like that, just to try to 
strengthen our presence within the community and within the indigenous community as well. Great. Um, so you add um, a lot of uh, Asian flavors to your food. I've been familiar with your uh, menu and your your uh, you know the 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 way you kind the of um, yeah your theme. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your style and where you draw flavors and ideas from for your menus? Yeah, I. Um... You know, I just, I, and I always, I say this respectfully, it's just, I just don't ever want to be someone who um, is just doing the same thing as everybody else. And um, I just, I had noticed, and I, and again, I'm not saying this in a in a rude way, it's just, uh, you know, growing up on the reservation in Okewinge, everybody was doing fry bread sales, fry bread sales, fry bread, and I was just like, you know, I love fry bread, but I want to be able to try other things out so I can miss it, you know what I mean? Like, I was having fry bread all the time, and I was just like, it's not the healthiest thing you can have on the menu um, at any single time. So um, I started experimenting with corn. Um, you know, nixtamalization was one of the first things that um, that my mentor taught me. You know, Ray, Chef Ray, um, just as much as I do. And um, through that experience that I got under his mentorship, under his leadership, it was uh, uh, telling a story with my food. And I felt like, you know, with all the things that I just said previously, it made sense to do something that was just different to stand out. And I think um, starting off with like an Asian inspired menu that kind of now it's a little bit more general uh, with the soul food thing. But I think that that was a really good start because I, I love the simplicity and the minimalistic uh, uh, look that Asian food has, but um, I also love the flavor that it packs inside. So that was really uh, just a huge, huge uh, inspiration for me, and, and that's carried on to my food now. And I think that right now at this current moment in time, we um, we have so many different uh, native chefs that are out there that are representing us, and they're doing they're break they're kind of breaking barriers for us. You know what I mean? And I want to be able to continue that, and I want to be able to continue honoring our people. Um, in the best way possible. And um, I'm pretty sure that other Native chefs have experienced this, but one of the things that I hate the most is when people are like, oh, I have this Native chef, I have this Native chef, and I'm not I'm not embarrassed to be Native and I'm not embarrassed to be a chef, but, like, you don't introduce any other race as, like, oh, we have this black chef coming up, we have this white chef coming up. And I just want people to know that, like, just because we're indigenous, we're not limited to just what people think that they know indigenous food is about. Like, and we're not limited as our as ourselves as people to just being mediocre. Like, we can be great regardless of where we're from. And I think um, my menu is a testament to that, and it's just going to keep growing to become a bigger testament to that. Nice. Um, so, can you describe a little bit about uh, what is on the menu right now, and how how you do add some of those flavors from uh, your pueblo into uh, this menu here? Yeah. So, um, right now we're called Indigenous Soul Food. You pop up Indigenous Soul Food, and uh, the the premise or the theme of the menu is to take soul food dishes. Um, and soul food is a word I use generally. I don't mean like the specific. Southern style soul food. I mean, like food that's just umami, pack, packed with umami. You know what I mean? Food that like you can just take a deep breath and be like, okay, like wow, like that was that was an experience. You know, something mm-hmm. that like your your family cooks. Your you know something that you can go to like your favorite restaurant and just have that experience. And I I wanted to take these specific dishes from across the world and, and apply that um, with an indigenous kind of uh, menu. And I think like right now. Um, the best sellers that we have 
that we're utilizing right now are the duck fat fried chicken wings. Um, and then we have a quite a selection of flavors right now. We have Chimayo Korean. We have a hatch green chili lemon pepper. And we have a, um, a buffalo, but we use our buffalo. We, we mix duck and, and um, uh, bacon butter with that to add flavor. And then we have, um, of course, we have to have a green chili cheeseburger on the menu. Um, mm-hmm. That's soul food to me, Mexicans, 100%. But the interesting thing about our, our, our cheeseburger is that is it not only a smash burger, but we've been experimenting with koji. And koji is a fermented fungus that's uh, really popular in Japan. And um, it's really starting to kind of uh, get a lot more attention here in America. And uh, our koji smash burger has amazing reviews. Um, and, you know, just little, little simple things like that is helping us stand apart from, from other, other places. You know what I mean? Like, I, again, I want to be able to utilize all these ingredients that I've learned in uh, my previous uh, spots or, or stops that I've been at. And I want to try to utilize that now and bridge the gap between the reservation life and, and the urban life. Because we all know that it's really hard to just balance between the two. So if you can find some middle ground, that's the best thing possible. And I, I and when I say that, I want people to understand that um, not only is the food representation of that, but like the ambiance that we're trying to create here. Like I want people that are um, coming here to discuss business or they want to be able to just get away from their from their personal life. Uh, I want them to come and feel like this is a safe haven for those people to be able to just enjoy themselves and have a great meal and uh, feel comfortable knowing that. Um, we're being represented in the right way. And, uh, you know, like, you know, again, with the food as well, too, I just think that it's really important that um, we're at the forefront of being the the bridge that, you know, gaps are the bridge between the gap that um, brings us all together. Like, mm-hmm. I have so many people on my res that have tried my food that were like, wow, I would never would have tried it if you hadn't put these indigenous ingredients, like, like such as our Pueblo Quesadilla, where I use my Sayas feast day stew. And we put it inside the normal quesadilla recipe, but people that aren't used to res food know what quesadilla is, and they try out my sayas stew, and they're like, oh, this is way better than any other quesadilla that we've had. So, um, you know, we're just, yeah. we're always experimenting with things. Um, it kind of, it bugs a lot of people too, um, you know, but that's kind of the goal that we're trying to shoot for. Like, we want to be able to um, say that we're different, and we want to be able to prove that we're different. And I think that right now, because of the help that we've received from Liz and the assistance from her, she's been an amazing, amazing person to work with. Uh, right. We have the creativity and we have the uh, opportunity to really set ourselves apart and, and kind of be at the forefront of this next, uh, you know, generation of chefs and, and foodies that are that are indigenous and people of color and, and trying to set themselves apart. And yeah. if they can look to us for uh, as an example, so be it. And I, I'm happy to be here to help anybody out. All right. So um, Liz just described Old Town Albuquerque. It's um, touristy. It has, uh, you know, those roots of uh, colonization there. Uh, What does it mean for you to be in that space there in Old Town and to be representing yourself and um, your, your community? All right. Um, so we don't uh, have Ryan there, but um, I want to go back to uh, Liz for this uh, quick question here. Um, uh, Elizabeth, uh, c- can you answer that question? Like, what, what does it mean for you to, um, you know, have that space there, uh, you know, uh, on top yeah. of that history? Um, yeah, I mean, it is 
like, like Ryan was saying, it is all about um, visibility. Um, and yeah, just the, the feeling of like, we are here, we are still like, we're not, we are here, we exist. Um, I grew up here in Albuquerque and I grew up um, in the South Valley and, uh, you know, in, uh, my childhood was in the like, all of the 80s and um, the landscape here has changed dramatically um, where there is actually a lot more visibility now. I think that um, things changed a lot in the late 90s um, with the casinos and people, I feel like, having more of a voice and more of a seat at the table just yeah. because of the financial change. Um, but it has really changed the visibility here in New Mexico where now you drive on you know the interstate and you see the delineation like the tribal um this is a reservation land this is tribal land yeah um and so i think that having a place here in old town um and a lot of times people come to new mexico and they're like oh we want new mexican we want mexican food we want mexican food hey um elizabeth we're gonna go to a break right now we'll be right back Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our special feature on indigenous food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. Uh, before we get to this last segment here about the 2022 segment or 2022 census on agriculture, um, I want to uh, give it back to Liz um, Gaylor, who's with us. Uh, you, you were just saying something about, uh, you know, what it means to you to to be in this space there in Old Town. Uh, go ahead and finish your thought. Yeah, it, um, it was just um, kind of commenting on um, the like people who, especially because we are in a tourist area, so many people who travel here are looking for, you know, their mind of like, what is Mexican food? We want Mexican food. Um, and then, of course, here in New Mexico, we have a lot of pride of like our New Mexican food but really understanding that this food that is Mexican, that is New Mexican, it is indigenous food. Like that, the corn, the masa, the tortillas, like all of those things that um, are made and, you know, have been made here for forever. It's like the history of this area and this food and the different dishes. And so uh, it's funny, like the number one request we have from people traveling is like, can we get tacos? Mm -hmm. And um, so it's been great having Brian here because he makes absolutely amazing tacos using like nixtamalized corn. And then we you know, use all this local, like he, he didn't really go into this, but he has um, from a local mushroom grower, he has a um, lion's mane mushroom, vegan taco. So he's calling it a vegan asada. And so he's using his traditional like chili flavors on, and then braising these mushrooms, and and it's the most delicious. I, we have people who hate mushrooms yeah. who are shocked <laughs> by this, and they're just like, "This is how, how is this so delicious?" 
Um, and he has a little spin on like a three sisters. He calls it the three aunties with the fun guy. Um, a little, yeah. a little humor in there um, <laughs> because it's the uh, three sisters and it has like a, but he puts the Asian spin. So it's um, locally grown um, corn and, uh, and squash, but then also has miso as the bean and then mushrooms, which is a fun guy. Um, so it. like really beautiful dishes so it's All right. great ha great having the local representation but thank you i'll let you get, okay. get on to the next segment all right well thank you again so much uh so joining us now from eagle butte south dakota is kelsey kelsey scott she's the chief strategy officer for the intertribal agriculture council and she is lakota welcome back to the menu kelsey i'm bet do i stay good day andy it's good to be here thanks for having me yeah. So Native ag agriculture sales um, not quite doubled over the five years, 2017 to 2022. Um, can you expand on that? Um, I mean, it is pretty impressive, though. Um, and what is the good news about those numbers there? Absolutely. Well, I, what I want to preface with is just a recognition that census data is the reported data, right? And so this is why it's so important that we make sure we, uh, as American Indian and Alaska Native producers are reporting because this data set is gonna be what drives a lot of how USDA funding will flow out into the communities over the next five years until the next data comes out. So what I see when I look at the data in comparison from 2017 to 2022 is that there's more reporting taking place of more sales. And so I, I loved hearing uh, the previous comment of, I'm paying the, the, the grower what it's worth. I'm not haggling them when they come into my store. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a part of the really prominent reality that has started to take shape over the past few years if we, is we've started to figure out how to regionalize or, or localize the point of sale for those products. And we're seeing more revenues for our commodities, for our, our grown foods and, and livestock, because there's a focus in on how do we keep our foods more local and how do we feed our communities with them. Right. Um, so I uh, want to go a little bit deeper, if we could. Um, how does something like inflation show up in those numbers? Uh, these are net sales. So uh, is there a way to figure out whether native ag business are actually profiting more or are they just having to pay more because uh, of that much, uh, you know, of, of because of inflation? Yeah, absolutely. So while inflation does play in, it doesn't play in at almost 50%, right? So mm -hmm. what we do know is that this is the first launch of the data set. Um, it, it's basically the raw data set and the high-level findings. Over the course of 2022, uh, the National Agricultural Statistics Survey will continue to synthesize and report out on this data set. This was just kind of the preliminary launch. And so this is where it becomes really important, I believe, for Indian country to help to inform NAS around how we want to see this data representing who we are and what we're doing in our communities uh, to help to inform what the highlight features will say about this data set as they continue to, to break it in. Um, one of the things that I, I just want to call out um, on the sales side of things is that if you look at the farm characteristics by race and ethnicity, you can start to see 
each um, category within which the operations are uh, associating where their sales were. So if it was in the market value of agricultural products, or if it was crops, livestock, or if it was through government program support payments, those are all broken out separately. And so you can actually see trends of where the commodities are or where the sales are for those individual operations on kind of a, a meta scale. Yeah, it's a huge, um, <clears throat> a huge census. So many, so many links and tables uh, to go through, and there's going to be more coming out about um, uh, Indian reservations and uh, Native ag, right? Yes, there will. I believe it is in July and August is their planned launch for. Um, they they come out with like a a reservation by reservation or tribe by tribe specific data set. Um, and, and what that will reflect is uh, how individual tribal peoples showed up and reported on their production. Um, we still take the firm stance at the Intertribal Agriculture Council that it's an underrepresentation of what actually is taking place. Um, and, and with the data that's currently available, you know, I can reflect on South Dakota. I think in using the data reference tool, um, I was able to find 7 million acres under Indian stewardship reported in South Dakota. Um, that's about the equivalent of only two and a half of our reservations. And, and we have many more than that in South Dakota. So it's a good um, metric to look at to monitor trends and to see how folks are showing up and reporting. But it is not fully comprehensive. Uh, it's just the best estimate that we have to, to build from. Okay. And uh, one thing that uh, the census also tells us is that the number of farms has gotten lower across the board, including in uh, Indian ag. Uh, does that also mean there are fewer native farmers? I think that it could mean that. Uh, one of the things that I would highlight is from one census to the next, there's kind of a shift in how some of the questions can be posed or asked. And so I, one of the things that I noticed in filling out my census from 2018 in comparison to 2022, or sorry, 2017, uh, in comparison to 2022, is that the way that it articulates how many producers are on the operation, you know, different questions like that, I think could sometimes um, create confusion around how to answer or how to denote if my operation or me as a producer and my husband as a producer should report for the same operation, right? So there's multiple different ways that we could look at the layers to what the data could tell um, and uh, until we really get access to, to more of the details and to understanding more of the ways that NAS chose to summarize these, it, it'll be kind of hard to understand the full picture. Um, what I will speak about generally, though, um, in, in the trend is the, from what I'm tracking, the reduction in number of farms for American Indian Alaskan Natives is at a slower rate than the national average. And so I think what that goes to show is it, it may be a 10-year a situation where we're starting to see a transition of some of the operations to maybe the next generation. So we may have some of our... Um, our older producers retiring from the operation and they're not, you know, being counted or they're not counting their share of the operation anymore. 
So, yeah, a lot of stories that could be told um, and just really looking forward to digging in and seeing what else comes from the additional releases. Right. Uh, can you describe the size of uh, native farms? Are you know are they big giant operations mostly, or small, um, you know little little farms in in the community? Yeah. So in the 2022 report out for American Indian and Alaskan Native alone, or in combination with other races, uh, we see that you know the one to nine acres up to the 50 to 179 acres is where the majority of um, operation size falls as the data is currently reported. Um, we did see a trend overall and an increase in the land that is in um, uh, op operatorship by American Indian and Alaska Natives. Um, and so from that, you know, there's, there's a pretty good increase in trend for most of those categories for operation sizes. Uh, but we, we are showing up with operations from one to nine acres all the way up to 500 acres or more. All right. Uh, does the report deal mainly with farms or are there other related businesses this applies to? Yeah, so I think of this report in my mind kind of as like um, post farm gate. So the production that's taking place, or sorry, uh, pre farm gate. So so any of the production that's taking place on the land, any of the stewardship that's taking place in relation to the land. Um, and so the Ag Census is intended to capture, you know, they're reported out as individual farms, but I as a rancher am included as a farm. That's how we're reflected. Um, and so there was a, a good effort made in the 2022 census to be more inclusive of um, our, our more indigenous foods reflected for an ability to, to be able to communicate and storytell around the value within which we're contributing to our local economies and our local food systems through these uh, native food systems that, that maybe aren't necessarily reflected in your, you know, your, your corn crops and, and your cattle or your feedlots or your hogs and swine. Um, and so that's where I think it's important that we help to inform the story of how we want to see these uh, categories broken down in telling the data with the future launches um, uh, of whatever release is intended for the American Indian and Alaska Native data sets. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's anything from crop production to um, livestock production. We've got vegetable and melon farming, fruit trees, greenhouses, cotton farming, um, you know, dairy cattle, hog, poultry, bison, aquaculture, everything is included in that count. Uh, how about uh, like commercial fishers, fishing? Um, I, you know, I think that any amount of fishing that is counted would, would fall within the aquaculture mm -hmm. category. Um, the unique thing about that, though, is the number's pretty low, as I would estimate it. So I think that that, you know, I don't have personally mm -hmm. <laughs> any fishing that I report, so I'm not sure how that part of the census reflects. But okay. my guess would be that it may not be the most reflective for our uh, Native fishers people to be able to report in a meaningful way for the data, uh, for the data set. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, ranching, uh, which is a big part of Indian agriculture. Uh, how ha what, what, what's been the trend there? Yeah, so what's really unique is 
um, in comparison to 2017, where we had $3.6 billion in ag revenues reported, there in 2022 was $3.4 billion in uh, cattle operation revenues reported. So we're seeing growth uh, by industry um, within. Uh, all of the industries are growing as far as total revenues that have been reported. Um, and majority of sales in the ranching space come from the two that were reported came from the 23,159 beef cattle ranches. Uh, that's around 39% of all of Indian agricultural operations that had reported. Okay. We're just about to wrap up in, in, in a minute here, but uh, can you tell us what, you know, all, all of this means when there was a pandemic in the middle of that 2017-2022? Absolutely. I mean, as you started off with the question, you know, how does inflation play into this? Uh, that question can be replicated in so many ways. You know, how does the the devastating droughts in the Midwest play into this? How does the uh, pandemic play into this? How, how does all of the series of economic downturns and uh, you know, natural disasters that, that we've endured? Um, what I think is really a critical message here is that as this data shows and as we continue to inform this data, being counted really nurtures recognition and appreciation for the contributions of what tribal producers extend not only to their communities but beyond and it really affirms that native people are still here and we're still stewarding our lands we're still feeding our communities and we have a very robust approach to doing both of those things that all of agriculture could look to to learn from all right all right. Well, that is uh, all the time we have for this episode of The Menu on Native America Calling. I'd like to say thank you to our guests, Kelsey Scott, Ryan Taylor, and Elizabeth Gaylor. Join us tomorrow for an audio sneak peek at Sensing Sasquatch, which is a new Native art exhibit opening this weekend at the High Desert Museum in Bend, Oregon. I'm host and producer for the menu here at Native America Calling, Andy Murphy. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 35 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected, and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Uli helisti ja ate ti yiska i osta jalstaiti jaltelti ala osta jalati he anigata osta yowane ayela witatla no heta ayela nudanadega anaxestis he a ija ate ti yiska with the jetla gesesti uko jitaduli to delquasti witatla no heta niyawia ayela nudanadega anaxestiski na healthcare.gov ala 1-800-318-2596 he a getsa no semedicare ala medicaid unadashka i Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. 
Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.